My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here also. If we've not yet had the chance to meet, really glad that you're here. We are in Hebrews chapter two. We're going through a series called The Sermon God Wrote because uh, the book of Hebrews is obviously scripture, which comes from God, but it was written by an anonymous author. We don't know who wrote it. And it was originally a sermon that got turned into a letter. And so each week we're taking a a little bit of this to study and to learn what it is that God wants to to speak to us. We love going through books of the Bible. And this is uh, for us as Sound City Bible Church, our first time tackling a big book of the Bible. It'll be a long sermon series for us over a year. And so uh, hopefully you guys are engaged and studying and learning along with us. Hebrews chapter two, verses five through nine. I'm gonna read straight through the passage. I'll pray and then we'll spend some time unpacking it together today. Hebrews 2, five. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, family. God, we are so thankful for your word. God, we're so thankful that when we need to hear from you, we can open the scriptures and we can hear your voice at any time, day or night. And God, we wanna acknowledge today as we're gathering together in this time that that many of us are in a wide variety of places. God, some are gathering here today feeling very encouraged, feeling full of life, feeling hopeful about the days and weeks and months to come. God, others here today are very discouraged. God, some of us are exhausted. Some are broken. And God, we want to all find the common ground at the foot of the cross today. I pray that you would guard my lips, help me to only speak and teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, for each and every one of my friends here today, I pray that we'd have soft and teachable and receptive hearts that we might have a bigger picture of Jesus. Whatever's vying for our attention right now, whatever's dominating our lives, God, I pray that Jesus would be bigger. Help us to see him today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanna ask a simple question today. Who's running the world? Who, seriously, who's in charge? Does anybody know? Because I'm not much of a news junkie, but I do like to scroll through social media and, and see things, and it just seems like day after day after day, it's more bad news, more hardship, more chaos. Who's running the show? That's good. Let's pray and close. Go home. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> you skipped to the end. You know, I, I uh, was watching this week. There was a uh, Uh, I believe it was five candidates of the Democrat Party all uh, vying for uh, the position of being the nominee so that they might be the next president of the United States. And in weeks past, the Republican Party has put forward their 13 or 1400 
candidates that they might want to put forward. Somebody is, is trying to be the next leader of the United States of America. Somebody wants to be the president, and as the leader of the United States of America, you make decisions that affect not only Americans, but actually affect people the whole entire world. Is, is one of those people running the world? Maybe it's not even an American. Maybe other countries uh, like, like China or, or Turkey or Iran or others that are, that are more involved in the global stage than ever before. Maybe one of those countries is running the world. If you ask the, the great American philosopher, Beyonce, who run the world, she's going to say, girls, that's right. Or if you come over to my house around nap time and ask my two-year-old who's in charge of the world, yeah, she's going to, right? Some of my parents in the room know what I'm talking about. They are in charge of the world. That's actually a mantra in our house to my two-year-old. Are you in charge? And one time she looked at me and goes, yes, I am in charge. I was like, Woo, oh man, I've got a live wire here. Serious question. We're kind of laughing about it, but in all sincerity, there is so much wrong with the world. Whatever your political persuasion, whatever your background, whatever your race, whatever your socioeconomic status, you all can agree. I think that's the one thing that everyone on planet Earth can agree, that things seem a little bit out of shape. It doesn't seem like the world is going how it should be going. It doesn't seem like things are running according to how we think they should be running. And that's really what this passage today in Hebrews chapter two, these verses, is all about. It's about who's in charge of the world. It's about who's really running the show and how are we supposed to deal with the world when things seem like they're out of control. So I just wanna ask a series of questions. We're gonna go through this passage and we're gonna tease out a series of questions. And the first question is, are angels running the world? Now that's an odd question, but look at what he starts with. He says this, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. For those of you who have been here for the last few weeks, you know that we've been talking about angels a great deal. The, the preponderance of chapter one is all about angels, about how they're ministering spirits that, that do God's will and they're, they're impressive, but they're nothing compared to the glory of the Son of God. And that angels were somehow, we don't fully understand, but angels were somehow involved in the giving of the law to Moses and to the people of Israel. But now that Jesus has come, he's got a, a greater message than the angels. Well, here, as the, the author of Hebrews begins to talk about ruling the world and who's in charge in this age to come, the first thing he says is, hey, guess what? Angels are not the ones running the show. I didn't know that that was one of the options. Did you? Actually, it's interesting. If you go back into Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32, I found this, this verse this week in my study. It says this, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, basically when, when God decided where everybody's gonna live and, and breathe and, and exist and die, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the, now in our translation that we use, the ESV, it says, sons of God. And if you look in various translations, they translate it differently. The word in the Hebrew originally is Elohim. And Elohim is a very important word, and it's a very flexible word. Elohim, if you're reading through your Old Testament and you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that's not Elohim, that's Yahweh. That's the name of God. That's the, the name that he revealed himself. But if you're reading through your Old Testament and you come across the word God, pretty likely that it's this word, Elohim. If you are actually reading through your Old Testament and it talks about how uh, nations worshiped false gods, lowercase g, it's actually the same word, Elohim. If it talks about powers or, or rulers or mighty ones, 
it's probably the same word. And sometimes, yes, angels. When you see the word angels, it's this word Elohim or sons of God. It's a very flexible word. Listen to this uh, commentator, uh, Walter Elway says this, the term Elohim means a God in the widest sense. The plural form is likely a plural of majesty or perhaps of intensity, either of deity or power to signify highly or intensely powerful. So in the book of Deuteronomy, there's some evidence. We don't fully understand it, but somehow God had angels involved in the rulership of the world. Angels were involved in dividing where the people live. Somehow, we don't fully understand. We don't get a lot of explanation, but the writer of Hebrews is assuming that that's the case. And here's the thing about angels. They seem so high and way up there, and they seem so lofty. It's almost like angels are the dividing line between God and mankind. God is up here, high, divine, exalted. We're down here, mortal, frail, lowly, and angels are kind of somewhere in between. They're not God. They're not eternal. They're not divine in that sense, but they are uh, superior to us in those ways. But here's what the writer of Hebrews has really been going out of his way to get us to see. As impressive as angels are, as glorious as angels are, they do not occupy that special place in God's heart that humanity does. Angels are servants. Angels are ministers. And God has a type of love for them. But you know what God loves? People. God cares about human beings. Listen to this uh, commentator, R.C.H. Lenski. He says this, although angels seem to be so far above us, we have already been told that they're only officiating spirits who are commissioned to service for our sake. We are the royal heirs of the world to come and not they. To us and not to them has God subjected the inhabited earth, the one about to come. So, So here's the point. Just to get this one out of the way, The writer of Hebrews is saying, it's a new day. There's a new world to come. There's a new age to come. We'll unpack this more later, but but I want you to understand when Jesus died and when Jesus rose again, it fundamentally shifted the nature of the universe. It is not the same old business as usual. Amen? Something has really changed. God is now overseeing and ruling the world in a different way. And just in case anybody that was listening to him thought that maybe he was going to use the angels to rule over the world the way he did before, he says, nope, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Okay, good. That one is probably easier for us. We, we are not being governed in the world by angels. Well, then the next question is, well, are people in charge? Is humanity in charge? The writer of Hebrews starts quoting from Psalm 8. He says this, it has been testified somewhere. And pause, that makes me laugh every time. Because he is a Bible scholar. He knows exactly where he's quoting from. It's like when preachers say like, oh, you know, the Bible says, and then they just do that. That's kind of what he's doing. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. I would like to take you, Sound City, on a brief Bible safari. If you have your Bible and you have enough fingers to do this, keep one finger here in Hebrews 2 and flip back to Psalm chapter 8 because there are some things in Psalm 8 that I want you to see that are applicable to what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at. Psalm 8 is a psalm from David, King David, great leader, great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus himself. This is what David's saying in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic 
is your name in all the earth. So this is a psalm of praise. This is a psalm of worship. And when David says, God, your name is great, we know that name doesn't just mean what he's called. It means his reputation. It means his character. It means who he is. He's saying, God, when I look at the world, it's majestic. It's beautiful. It's powerful. That means you are majestic. You are beautiful. You are powerful. He's praising God because of the evidence of nature. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. I love that. It's like, you're using babies. God, you're so strong, you use babies to defeat your enemies. That's, he's bragging on his God, isn't he? He's praising him. He's, he's putting God in the highest possible place that he could. And then he turns a corner. Verse three, when I look at your heavens, and this is what the writer of Hebrews is quoting from, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. He's, he's praising God. He's, he's telling God how amazing he is. And then he has this thought. How could you even be mindful of us? Any of you guys ever have that experience? You're, you're, maybe you read some article about something that NASA discovered. It would take us a trillion years and going the speed of light to get there. And like, this universe is so massive. God's just showing off. God's just showing off. I, I've said it before, but I love the quote. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon, walks up to the edge and says, wow, I am amazing. <laughs> Unless you're a profound narcissist. You walk up to the Grand Canyon, you say, this is mind-blowing. I, I can't even begin to fathom the type of God, the type of creator who could, who could do something like this. I actually had this experience last week. Um, Pastor Travis, who was just here doing the welcome, he, um, he went on a hike. He went to the en enchantments and he did this hike that takes a lot of people three days. He did it in one day. And he started texting with our elder team. He started sending us photos that he had taken and we had this group thread. I wanted to just show these to you because this is amazing. This is not Narnia. This is central Washington. <laughs> and, and he's texting us these pictures and I'm, and I'm looking at them on my, my little, my, you know, my phone, my three inch screen. Go to this next one. I love this. This is right before they throw the ring in to destroy it. And uh, <laughs> I love that. Go to this last one. You, by the way, you do not want to swim in that water. I know that uh, quite well. Look at that, beautiful. He's texting us these pictures and I'm just having this moment like, I'm not even there. I'm looking at a, a three-inch photograph and I'm just having like kind of to catch my breath because God's glory and his, his majesty is so much on display. And this is, this is somewhere that like if we wanted to, we could go there. This isn't even the farthest reaches of space or the depths of the ocean. This is, this is God's glory on display. Any of you feel a little bit small? Any of you feel like, wow, God, you've got all this majesty. How could you even be mindful of me? And then he says this. He keeps going, the psalmist, David. You have given him, mankind, dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, and then he concludes with more praise. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic 
is your name in all the earth. That word dominion is a very interesting word. And those of you who are, who are paying attention to your Old Testament scriptures, what does that word bring to mind? Where, where would that send us? Genesis 1. Yeah, I heard it because I imagined it. Uh, Genesis 1. If you've got another finger, keep, Psalm 8, flip back to Genesis 1. Verses 26 through 28. This is the account of God creating man. I told you, we're going on a Bible safari. Just follow me. Then God said, let us make man in our image, there's the Trinity, after our likeness, and let them have, what's the word? Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So yes, you are in charge of snakes and lizards. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them fully equal in dignity and value and worth, male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. By the way, Sound City Bible Church, I have seen so many new babies lately. You are doing a great job keeping that verse. Fill the earth and subdue it and have, here's our word again, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, go back to Hebrews chapter two. Here's the point. Here's the point. God created a world. He said, everything is good. Everything is, is, is good. And then he created mankind. You know what he said after he created mankind? Very good. He placed special honor, special love, special dignity on human beings, the, the kind that he didn't place on anything else in all of his creation. You know what he said? He said to the man and to the woman, you are in charge for me. This is my world. I've created the whole thing and I want you to have a lot of babies and I want you to rule over this creation. I'm leaving you in charge as my representatives, as my agents, as those created in my image and likeness. I want you to lead how I would lead. I want you to care for the world how I would care for the world. Yikes is right. <laughs> A few years ago, uh, when my family moved from Alaska to Seattle, the first place we landed was in, the, was in the Fremont neighborhood, and there was a couple, a family from the church, that gave us their house to stay in free for a year. It was a huge blessing. My wife and I had kind of taken a leap of faith to move our family here, and this family said, hey, we're going to be overseas teaching. Our house is sitting empty, and, and the connection was made, and we moved in. I have never taken such good care of anything in my life as we did this house because we're staying there for free. Anybody ever house sat or been entrusted, uh, you know, somebody's car? You, you tend to think differently, right? I'm like, kids, like hands off the walls. Kids, get off the furniture. In fact, go outside. Like we're just trying to take care of this, this house that somebody gifted to us because we, we were stewards. Mankind is stewards of God's earth. Mankind was put into a position of leadership, dominion. And, and don't let that word throw you. In, in our culture, dominion and dominate sounds very um, authoritarian or heavy-handed. No, we're, we as human beings are to be mindful of the flourishing of God's good creation. To see it grow, to see it do well, to see it healthy. Please don't hear this in any sort of political way, but there's a sense in which every Christian should be an environmentalist. 
because God created this beautiful world and we're to care for it. Every Christian should be a humanitarian because God created humans and we're to love and care for them. God created so many good things and our responsibility is to act on God's behalf in the leading, shepherding, caring for of his earth. So that leads me to my next question. How do we do? How are we doing? What's the report card? What's our grade? Yeah, not so good. Picking back up uh, partway through verse eight. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Pause for a minute. A lot of pronouns in there. Him, his, he. In putting everything in subjection to him, don't jump too far. Who are we still talking about? We're still talking about mankind. God put everything in subjection to mankind. He, God, left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The report card is in. The grade is not good. Mankind has chosen instead of acting on God's behalf to govern the world, to rule, to exercise dominion as God would do, we have chosen what the Bible calls sin. We choose our own way. Rather than seeking the flourishing of others, rather than seeking the flourishing of the world, we have chosen to gratify ourselves, to seek to operate on our own terms, even at the expense of God's good creation. The Bible calls this sin. When you and I hear the word sin, we often have a very individualistic mindset. We think of the bad things that we do. And yes, that is true. But there is also a corporate application in which God gave a responsibility to humankind for all of us together to exercise this rule over the world. And we all together have been a colossal failure. Colossal failure. Right now, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, mankind. We're supposed to rule. We're supposed to care for the planet, people, nature, creation, things. And we just haven't done it. And there's no one who's exempt. You don't get to say, I have perfectly exercised rule and dominion the way that God would want. No. Each and every one of us has been a part of the problem. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us on our own is on the hook. Colossal failure, war, genocide, starvation, exploitation, murder, rape, Racism, sexism, our resume is not that good. So, what do we do? I hope you need good news because that's some very good news for you. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but, but, oh, that's an important word. We see him. This is a new hymn, church. 
we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely who? Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The writer of Hebrews does something remarkable here. He says, go back and look at Psalm 8, which is also talking about Genesis 1. God put mankind in charge of the world. Mankind failed. We don't see everything in subjection to him, but look who was there the whole time. You missed it, but Psalm 8 was actually about Jesus. And Jesus will now be the new humanity who will govern over God's world, doing what God had intended for humanity to do in the first place. It's now Jesus. He's the solution to the leadership problem. You can hang a sign up over the world that says, under new management. It's Jesus. We have this individualistic mindset and there are some very good things about, about thinking individually. The, the Bible does talk about how God knows the number of hairs we have on our head, and that's, that's beautiful. But the Bible also speaks a lot of, of corporate sort of language. And one of the corporate distinctions that the Apostle Paul makes over in Romans is that there's basically two humanities. There is the humanity that's in Adam. In Adam. Part of the, the, the failure, right? In Adam... Paul says, all die. There's a new humanity in Christ. Which leader are you going to follow? Who's going to be your representative? Adam or Christ? The one who failed in the garden or the one who was faithful in the garden all the way to death on the cross? The writer's trying to show his Hebrews who are very familiar with the Old Testament, it was, it was there all along. It was Jesus. You just didn't see it. It was Jesus. And now you have to go back and reread those verses before because Jesus just showed up. It's not just about humanity. It's not just about us. It's actually about seeing him. We see him, Jesus. Listen to this, this quote from, from Philip Edgecombe Hughes. I like this quote. He says this, the psalmist contemplates with wonder the glory of man who is the crown of God's creation is entrusted with dominion over all other creatures. Mankind has sinfully betrayed this trust and perverted this power, yet the purposes of God cannot fail. Am I getting an amen from anybody on that one? The purposes of God cannot fail. God is not panicking. When humanity failed, God did not panic. The Bible tells us that God had a plan from the beginning of the ages to send his son Jesus to live, to die, to rise again. It is in the man Jesus Christ as we have said, that these purposes are restored and brought to fulfillment. You guys, this is amazing news. We failed. We've made a royal mess of things. Jesus steps in and says, hey, I'm gonna take over. I will be that new humanity. I will exercise God's rule, his wise, loving, shalom rule over the world that you guys failed to do. And you know what's amazing about Jesus? It's not just that Jesus would step in and lead. It's the way in which Jesus steps in to lead. I was thinking about this. I've been watching the uh, baseball playoffs. I enjoy, enjoy playoffs. And uh, you know how when somebody like really fails, <laughs> uh, they, they, what happens to them, you know? They get yanked. 
pulled out of the game. And actually, sometimes the people who come in and take over, they, they come in with some swagger, like, yeah, you, you failed. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you how it's done, right? That is not how Jesus steps into the situation at all. Jesus steps into the situation, not in swagger, not in, yeah, you messed that up. Let me show you how it's done. No, it says that he, he steps in by going low. Look at this. Jesus was made lower than the angels. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. How many of you really love when you get a demotion at work? You know, hey, you've been, you've been doing good work. You got this corner office. We're actually going to pay you less and move you into the mail room. Oh, thank you, right? We don't like that. We're prideful. Jesus the son of God. We already saw in chapter one that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is God of God, light of true light. He is the glory of God. And yet here, according to the father's perfect will, according to the plan that they made before the foundation of the world, says, yeah, I'll, I'll go lower. I'll go below the angels. I'll not just go low, take on human flesh, become a man. I'll, I'll be born into a poor family. My mother will be mocked as a, as a harlot, someone who is promiscuous and she'll be made fun of. And I'll grow up in a, in a small town. Not a lot of money, not a lot of resources. Yeah, I'll, be, I'll even be born in the time in human history before electricity, before running water, before heat, before cable. I'll, I'll be born, I'll do that. I'll take on that. I'll, I'll live a life of suffering. I'll live a life so much so that my nickname will be, will be man of sorrows. I will live not just a life, I'll live a really hard life. He's made lower than the angels. It's not just that, he went through the suffering of death and he tasted death. That phrase, tasted death, it's an, it's an idiom, it's a saying. It doesn't mean like, like sipping it like at a wine tasting. No, it means that he drank the cup dry. That Jesus had gone around the entire countryside telling people of God's love, of his mercy for them, that there's forgiveness to be found, that Jesus was bringing a new kingdom with him, that there's gonna be a, a whole new humanity. It's gonna be a new era. It's gonna be new management. And the people did not receive him and they crucified him. And he was arrested and he was flogged. And they put a blindfold on him and they started making fun of him saying, who hit you? They took sharp thorns and they drove them into his scalp and blood poured down his face and Jesus had the taste of blood on his lips. And they dragged him outside of the city and they stripped his clothes off of him and they nailed his hands and his feet to a Roman cross and people who walked by wagged their heads and pointed their fingers and were ashamed of him and mocked him and cursed him and spit on him. I ask you, what hardship are you going through right now? And I, I do not mean in any way, shape, or form to diminish or, 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 or make light of the pain that you're experiencing. But I want you to understand that what Jesus went through was unlike anything we have ever experienced. Not just the physical pain of being beaten and flogged and crucified, not just the emotional pain of having friends and family turn their back on him, but there was a spiritual pain that you and I could never know because on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, 
The only time in the scripture where Jesus calls God God instead of Father is when he is on the cross crying out, why have you forsaken me? Jesus didn't step in and and take over with a lot of big talk. He stepped in and went through everything that we've gone through and more. The suffering of death. Suffering is the most common thing to the human condition. We all suffer. Maybe you're not in a period of suffering right now. I bet you know someone who does. Maybe you just got done and you're like, glad that's over. Probably another one will come. Jesus has experienced it. He died on the cross in our place because of our failure to live up to what God commanded us to do. Why did he do this? The grace of God. The grace of God. Jesus did not step into this situation to show us up. Look what you guys failed to do. Jesus didn't step in to rub our noses in it. Jesus stepped in because of the grace of God. Too many Christians view God the Father as one with just a hammer hanging over their head, ready to smack them down at the first sign of weakness or sin. But if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, the hammer fell on Jesus and there is no more wrath for you. When God looks at you, he says, you failed to do what you were commanded to do, but I am going to count you as righteous because Jesus has done it perfectly. God's attitude towards you is not one of a disappointed, huffing father. You are shame-free in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus. By the grace of God, Jesus did this because God is a God who is rich in grace and mercy and love and patience. Yes, his wrath is real. Yes, judgment is real. But if you are a Christian, those things are all on Jesus and none for you. And who's it for? Everyone. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Uh, Real talk, there are people that you know, there are people that I know, that you look at and you think, yeah, they might be beyond the reach of the grace of God. It's a safe place, we can admit that. I have no idea how that person could come back from whatever their life looks like. Listen, may we repent of that attitude. Grace of God for everyone. There is no one who is so far gone that they are beyond the saving reach of God's miraculous, heart-changing, life-changing grace. Amen? Amen. There is no one. God has put people in your life who need to hear this message of grace. Please, I'm begging you. Don't write them off. Don't say, well, that would take a miracle. Yeah, it did take a miracle. When you got saved, it took a miracle too. You were spiritually dead and God had to bring that corpse back to life, right? God's a miracle-working God. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what's the result? Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor. Jesus died. Jesus was buried in the ground like a seed. And on the third day, guess what happened, church? He rose. He got up. He walked out of the grave. He says, yep, death, 
been there, done that. Now, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father and he occupies a place of extreme glory and honor. And you know what's amazing? We're invited to share in that glory and honor. Going all the way back to Genesis 1, God created mankind to have a place of glory and honor. But when we rebelled, when we chose our own way, that glory and that honor was diminished. Not gone away with, but diminished, broken, fractured. Now Jesus is in that place of glory and honor. He says, I'm gonna restore you to that place. I almost kind of feel like when I read this passage, the feeling that I get, it's almost like when somebody from kind of your small hometown makes it in the big time and then invites you to go uh, tour something with them, right? Anybody ever had that experience? Like maybe you grew up in a small town. I remember um, growing up in Anchorage, Alaska, not a lot of uh, celebrities come out of Anchorage, at least not originally until the reality TV explosion. But there was a guy who played high school hockey and he was an amazing hockey player. He got drafted and was rookie of the year in the NHL and won a Stanley Cup. I think it was his second year in the league. And everybody was like, he's one of us, he made it. And kind of this, this excitement gripped. I get that sense with Jesus. Jesus, humanity, lower than angels, suffering of death, he's with us. He's passed through death, he's now on the other side. And he's sending us an invitation that he can actually bring us beyond death as well. That's good news. This is good news. Man, I hope you needed good news because I got good news. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Now, one more question. One more question to ask. Okay, the world is not being governed by angels. Got that. Humankind was supposed to govern the world. We didn't do so well. Jesus is now governing the world. He's in charge. He's ruling. He's reigning. He is the right man for the job. Why does it sometimes look like it's so out of control in the world? Can we ask that question? Let's go back. I want to string a couple of these verses together so you can kind of see the sequence of thoughts. It was, this is what it says in verse five. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. So this is kind of the subject of what we're talking about, this world to come. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, this is Jesus. Now, we can go back and interpret this in light of Jesus. He left nothing outside his control. So the Bible definitively declares here all over the place, Jesus is in charge. God is sovereign, he's ruling. There is not one blade of grass that dies apart from his sovereign will. God's in charge, amen? At present, the writer of Hebrews acknowledges this, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we do see Jesus. Whew, this is tough. What are we supposed to do with this idea that Jesus is in charge and Jesus is loving and Jesus is good why are things still so broken? I have a couple of thoughts for you. One is, is, is this idea that we're living in an age of tension. Jesus has really come, he really died, he really rose again, and he really ushered in a new era in human history. However, we don't yet see it fully, do we? What are we still waiting for? Still waiting for the return of Jesus. And in the meantime, we're supposed to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Theologians call this sometimes the, the overlap of the ages, or sometimes they'll call it the, the already, not yet. In fact, it's actually a, a pretty significant theme in Hebrews. Let me just give you a, a couple of examples quickly. It talks in chapter six, verse five, about people who tasted the goodness of the powers of the age to come. There's an age that's coming, and we're just getting a little sample of it. It's like we, we snuck in the kitchen and, and snacked on dinner a little bit early. 
Chapter eight, verse 13, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Uh, Chapter nine, verses eight through nine, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Kind of confusing. We'll unpack that in a few months when we get to it. But what he's saying is we're, we're not quite there yet. We're not quite there yet. Or 926, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Or 1314, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We're living in this time of tension. I like to liken it to an engagement. For those of you who were engaged or maybe are engaged, the engagement is an awkward time. Because you're, you're making a commitment to one another, but you're not yet married. There's this overlap. You're, you're doing things that are going to lead to you being married, but you're not yet husband and wife. It's an awkward sort of a time. It's a tension time. And we're kind of like that right now. So Aaron, are you telling me that the answer to all of this suffering and hardship that I'm going through is just wait and one day Jesus will return and everything will be better? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. There's more, but, but let me start with this. Yes, we are consistently throughout the New Testament pointed to the hope that we have in the future. One of the most potentially insensitive verses in the entire Bible comes from Paul where he says, I'd like you guys to think that these light and momentary afflictions you're going through aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed. Light and momentary, Paul? That is very insensitive pastoring, Paul. I would like to, I would like to talk to you, right? But the point is, is a good one. What's the worst that could happen? You suffer for 70 years and then you die. It's really optimistic, right? It's a little morose. It's a little, it's a little morbid. But eternity in glory with Jesus, a new heavens, a new earth, no sin, no sickness, no elections, right? Jesus is just king forever. Eternity. So yes, it's not meant to diminish our suffering. The Bible is very honest. Our hardships are real. Our pain is real. But guess what? Eternity with Christ is going to be so good that we'll look back one day and say, oh, I get it. I get what Jesus was doing. I understand now. I see it. He's better. There's more though. Sometimes we are tempted, let's be honest, when we're going through suffering, when we're going through hardship, sometimes we are tempted to think maybe Jesus isn't really in control. And actually people go really, really sideways in their theology when they start giving room to that. Oh, God's not in control. He's not fully sovereign. No, he's in control. The Bible makes absolutely no no bones about it. Oh, even worse, this one breaks my heart. Maybe Jesus doesn't love me. Would actually be easier, right? That would help make a lot of sense of why I'm going through all this suffering, why I'm going through all this hardship. It's just because God hates my guts. Oh, it all makes sense now. No, no. The Bible says that God loves you. The Bible says that he is for you. The Bible says that he cares for you. Whatever our sufferings may mean, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. I actually think of my, my uh, two-year-old. She's almost three, so she's mostly potty trained now. But when she was younger, she would wear diapers. And uh, you know how it is with, with kids. They, they don't like their diaper to get changed. And she would have these soggy diapers and she was particularly stubborn about it. Now, go to her and say, Hadley, it's time to change your diaper. 
Now, one would think, one would think that she would say, oh, yes, Father, I understand that if I wear this diaper for too long, it will result in a, a painful rash and I'll have all sorts of hardship and suffering later on. I understand that in love, you are making me lay down on the ground so that you can change my diaper and clean me up and I can experience this little bit of unpleasantness now so that I can have more health in the future. You'd think, right? How many of you have ever had a one-year-old? Get your nieces, your nephews, kids you babysit. Kids throwing a fit, screaming, freaking out. Don't clean me up. Don't work on me. Don't fix me. And yet she doesn't have that long-term view that I do. How many of us are two-year-olds throwing a fit at God? He's working on us. He's doing things that are for our long-term good. And we're just spitting nails mad. If you can't say amen, you're allowed to say ouch. That's okay. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. When we go through hardships, it does not mean that God doesn't love us. We have to fight against that lie. Satan uses that lie a lot. Here's what it says. Go back to verse nine. It says that Jesus is, is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here's what I want you to see. When you suffer, Jesus knows what it's like. He empathizes, he cares, and he is with you. When we suffer, we like to ask the question, why? Rarely does God come and say, here's why. But every time God comes and says, here am I. I'm with you. I love you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will not abandon the project that I started working on. You're mine. You're loved. And here's the deal. When you go through hardships, sometimes people can relate, sometimes they can't. Jesus can always relate. Because we're gonna see, we've, we've really turned a corner in Hebrews now. We're gonna start talking about the humanity of Jesus in great detail. He gets it. More than I do, more than your friends do, more than your spouse does, he gets it. I'm gonna ask you this question. Do you want to see Jesus ruling and reigning over everything? Do you wanna see that? We don't have control over all things, but you know what we do have control over? Our choices. In light of what God has done, in light of the grace we've been shown, Christians, does your life reflect that rulership of God? Are there, so to speak, weeds sprouting up in your heart that need to be ripped out by the roots? Is there sin that God's convicting you of? We, we can't complain about the brokenness of the world when we're unwilling to respond to the Holy Spirit's work and the brokenness in our own heart. We might not be able to fix everything. Jesus can. And the starting point is, am I part of the problem or am I going to be part of the solution? Work in my heart, Holy Spirit. For those of you who are non-Christians, you need to understand that the Bible speaks clearly of, of two groups, two types of humanity. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And in a very real sense, it's those who are part of the problem who are still living in rebellion against God versus those who are in Christ who are being remade into the image of his son. Being recrowned with glory and honor, being remade in the image and likeness of God. So I want to invite everyone to respond. Some of you need to respond today. We're going to respond in a variety of ways. First way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and our offerings. The Bible says that God loves what kind of giver? A cheerful giver. 
If you're a guest, you're not under any obligation. Please don't, please don't feel awkward about that. But we're gonna give because God has given us his very best. This is worship. This is worship. For you who are Christians, this is an act of worship. While they're collecting the offering, let me go over a few uh, questions for us to talk about and, and some things to pray about this week in our groups or in our homes. How are we impacted and helped by remembering that Jesus rules the world? How does it help us to remember that Jesus was made like us in every way? Number three, why is the cross so central to the Christian faith? How does the cross challenge our self-made attempts to deal with suffering and hardship? And number four, what areas of your own life do not currently reflect the rule and reign of Jesus? And what's he asking you to do about it? This might be a great week for you to have a conversation with somebody. Some things to pray about. Pray that Christ would rule more in your heart and in your life. Number two, pray for those who are suffering, that they would experience Christ's comfort and his solidarity with them through the hardship. Uh, as I often say, I want to encourage you against gossip or, or sharing more information that you uh, might not have permission to share. But as you're able, I would like you to invite uh, people to pray with you for friends and family or those who are suffering. Number three, pray for Jesus to return so that we could experience the fullness of his new creation. That's a good prayer to pray, amen? We're gonna celebrate the Lord's table. We take the bread, which reminds us of Jesus' broken body, and we dip it into the wine or the juice, which reminds us of his blood that was spilled out. And today, as you taste that bread, as you taste that wine on your lips, I want you to remember that Jesus is the one who tasted death for us so that we could experience his grace and that Jesus is present with us. We're also gonna do something uh, a little bit different. We're going to uh, invite the prayer team. I'm gonna have the prayer team join me over here while we're singing, while we're celebrating communion, we're just gonna get a jump on praying for people. I know that in this room, there are those who are experiencing hardship and suffering. I know. And we wanna pray for you. Our intent is not to embarrass you. I know it's a little bit maybe nerve-wracking to come up to the front of the room and all of that. I just encourage you as you're able to fight off that tendency of fear and just come be a part of this. Let us pray for you. Let us love you. Let us, if you're sick, let us anoint you with oil. If you're, if you're hurting, if there's something you need to confess, let us pray for you. Elizabeth and the band's gonna lead us in a time of singing. These songs are prayers, church. This is us praying and responding to our great God. So I invite you to lift your voices and really sing from the, from the, the depths of who you are and praise our God who loved us and sent Jesus to suffer in our place that we might experience his healing. Let's all stand together, church, and I'll pray. If the prayer team would please come get in place. Father God, thank you. Thank you that we are not alone. Thank you that when we suffer, you're right there with us. God, we confess and repent of the times when we have believed that you're not sovereign, you're not in control. God, we confess and repent of the, the times when we've been tempted to believe the enemy's lie that you just don't love us. God, I pray that the truth of your word would feel more true in our hearts and our lives than, than this lie that you don't love us. God, we pray for all the different situations. I don't know of them. I don't know of all of them, but you do. All the people here in the room, all the people that we know, suffering, hardship, brokenness, I pray we would all come to the foot of the cross where we can find mercy and grace. God, help us to live as, as Jesus would have us live. God, walking in repentance when we fail, but in greater measure, 
being part of the solution, helping bring your, your wise and loving rule to the earth. We pray, Jesus, your kingdom would come, your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all this in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. Church, let's respond. Come forward for communion or prayer when you're ready.